0: So the reading uh, this morning is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11, uh, page 967 in the Bible. So Matthew chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, "'Throw yourself down, for it is written, "'He will command his angels concerning you, "'and they will lift you up in their hands "'so that you will not strike your foot against a stone.' "'Jesus answered him, "'It is also written, "'Do not put the Lord your God to the test.' "'Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain "'and showed him all the kingdoms of the world "'and their splendour. "'All this I will give to you,' he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's just open in a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to record the account of your gospel and of your life. We thank you that that reveals you as the Messiah, as the Savior who came to reunite us with God. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. On the 13th of May, 1940, Winston Churchill addressed the House of Commons for the first time. And this is what he said. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. And just a few days later... Hitler's army started to sweep through Holland, through Belgium, through France on its way to the English Channel. Now, Churchill was uniquely suited for his role, right? He had held a number of political and cabinet positions, so he had the experience. He was an artist, he was an historian, he was a prolific writer, he was a man who was well equipped for waging war with words. He saw action in India and in the Sudan. And apparently in the Sudan, he rode in the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire. And he he also saw action in the South African War, which I believe is the only time that he was actually caught and imprisoned by the South Africans. (coughs) He did, in the interest of full disclosure, go on to escape a few weeks later. Now, he had his flaws. He was an arrogant man. He once said, we are all worms but I do believe that I am a glow worm. (laughs) But he was the man of the hour. And it's hard to argue with the facts of history. He was unusually well equipped for the task, and history seemed to be poised for his arrival. Now, we've been looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, as told by Matthew over the last few weeks. Now, in one sense, frankly, it's ludicrous to even mention Churchill and Christ in the same breath, much less compare them. But there is a similarity, because what Matthew shows us in his gospel is that in Jesus' case, it's even harder to argue with the facts of history. Jesus was divinely equipped for his task, and it's clear that history was prepared in advance for his arrival. So Matthew spends the first three and a half chapters of his gospel shouting from the rooftops and authenticating Jesus' identity as the Messiah. He details the facts of history to show you that the long-promised Messiah, the Savior, has come, that Jesus Christ is him, that he's come to reconcile us to God and he's come to inaugurate his spiritual kingdom. So he starts in chapter 1 and he says, look at his genealogy. And he proves that Christ was of the line of David, just as Jeremiah prophesied that the Messiah would be hundreds of years before in Jeremiah chapter 23. And then in chapter 1 verse 18, Matthew says, Look at the circumstances of his birth. Look at the place he was born, as prophesied by Isaiah and Micah respectively, also hundreds of years earlier. And then in chapter 2, he says, Look at the Magi. Look at these wise men from another country who came looking for the Messiah, and look at how they were supernaturally led to him. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, look at how they fled to Egypt, Joseph and his family, which is what Hosea tells us to expect in Hosea chapter 11, also hundreds of years earlier. And then gloriously, he says, look at how God the Father himself confirmed that this is my son. The Holy Spirit visibly appears and settles on him. And the Father says, this is my Son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. And then finally, in the last stage of this period of authentication, Christ begins to preach. And Matthew says, look at his temptation in the wilderness, in the desert, which is what we'll be doing this morning. So Matthew's message is that the Messiah, the Savior, the King has come. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now one comment in passing. You may be skeptical about the 40 days of fasting, but actually there's really no need to be. There were various types of fasting in ancient times, some of which allowed water, but no food. And likely that's what Christ was going through. And if you do the research, if you go home and you fire up your browser and you type in the 1981 Irish hunger strike, you'll find a list of men and a number of examples where men survived for even longer periods of time without food, some amazingly for over 60 days. But the most important thing to notice in the beginning of this passage is that there are even more messianic themes and proofs which appear, some of which are really almost incidental. We can only touch on a couple. But one of the themes, for example, is that the Messiah is the true Israel in the desert. So in John chapter 15, John's writing, and what he does is he identifies Christ as the true vine, where Israel was the poor vine. And here we see Christ, the true vine, spending 40 days in the desert, being faithful, which is what Israel's 40 years in the desert as the poor vine was not. It was not always faithful. But that was looking forward to these 40 days. Those 40 years were a type. They were a model. They were a picture pointing to Christ's 40 days in the desert. There's another messianic theme that Paul unpacks later in Romans chapter 12. And he says... He talks about Adam and he talks about the fact that death came through a man Adam but the resurrection of the dead comes through another man Christ the second Adam and he talks about the first Adam having been tempted in a garden but the second Adam was tempted in a desert and the first Adam had everything he could possibly want including a companion and the second Adam had nothing he was he was in a desert he was hungry he was alone and the first Adam fell And he opened the door for evil and for suffering. But the second Adam prevailed and he secured our salvation. So Matthew is giving you the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the flight to Egypt, the confirmation by the Father, the final authentication of him as the true Israel and the second Adam during this time of temptation. He's painting that picture for you. So please don't take this the wrong way. But if you don't mind me misusing a popular economics phrase, it's about the Messiah, stupid. And now at this final stage of that authentication, Christ is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That word tempt, we tend to use quite narrowly as eliciting a desire. But the word tempt that's being translated here, is actually much broader and richer in its meaning. It conveys a strong sense of being tested, of being put through a trial, a trial which involves temptation. And that's really the best way to think of it here. So God is going to demonstrate that Jesus Christ really is his son. He's going to demonstrate that he will follow the path which has been laid out for him. And he does it by taking Christ into the wilderness, away from everybody... We allow Satan to tempt him. He's going to demonstrate that Christ is the Son of God. Satan, however, sees an irresistible opportunity. Because you see, he failed to dislodge God's plan by breaking the line of David over hundreds of years. He failed to dislodge God's plan by killing that infant under Herod. But now he has an opportunity to dislodge God's plan by ensuring that Jesus fails at the final step of his authentication, when he's physically at his weakest, when he's the most vulnerable, when there is nobody around to support him. And as is so often the case, his approach is subtle. It's insidious. And at the beginning, it's wrapped in innocence. Now, the best way to know what's actually going on here is to start with Christ's response to each of the temptations. Because then you can get to the core of the temptation, you can get to the message underneath the message. Then you can understand what Satan is actually after. And Christ's responses to these three temptations, we can summarize as being, I will trust God to provide, I will trust God to protect, and I will trust God's plan. Those are the three answers that he gives So we'll look at each of them in turn. Firstly, I will trust God to provide. Reading from verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now there's a little bit of a puzzle here, because at first glance, It looks like Satan is being a skeptic. It looks like he's not convinced about who this man is, right? And he's saying, prove it. But that's actually not that clear from the text, and commentators are quite divided as to whether Satan is saying, you're not the son of God, prove me wrong, or whether he's saying, given you are the son of God, why don't you do this thing? Now, I think it's the latter is the emphasis. I think Satan knew And I think he's saying, given you're the Son of God, why don't you do this thing? And there's three reasons why I say that. Firstly, yes, we know Satan is not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. We know he can only be in one place at a time, just like us. He's a creature. He's not omnipresent. But it's more than reasonable to assume that he knew about everything that had happened up to now. He knew who that baby was. He knew about everything that had happened subsequently, and he knew about the Father's confirmation of Christ at his baptism. It was a major and a public event. That's the first reason. Secondly, this wasn't a new relationship. If you just think about it, these two knew each other. You know from Scripture that Christ, the Son, had known this enemy for thousands of years. And that he's the one who is slated to defeat and to judge him. And there's a feeling in the dialogue that they knew each other from of old. Now, there's no explicit statement to that effect in the text, but just the directness of the back and forth and the way it ends certainly makes it feel that way. And then the third, and I actually think the strongest reason why Satan is saying, given you're the Son of God, why don't you do these things, is because of his motive. And that'll become obvious as we go through the passage. His motive reveals that he's not asking Christ to prove who he is. He's asking Christ to exploit who he is. So in verse 3, he starts with, You're the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. Is there anything wrong with that? It's fairly innocuous, don't you think? It's a fairly innocent recommendation or suggestion. He's not asking Jesus to do anything bad. He's not saying, go and commit this evil act. Go and do this really bad thing. Go and do this evil thing which which God condemns. It's a fairly innocuous thing. In fact, it's almost a caring and a considerate thing. He almost seems to be saying to this weak, emaciated, starving man who probably couldn't even stand on his own two feet, he almost seems to be saying, you 're the Son of God, why on earth are you allowing yourself to starve? You must be ravenous. look at yourself you're just your skin and bone forty days it 's utterly ridiculous. Just change these stones into bread. just eat and you 'll feel so much better you 've got the power. just use it it 's the right thing for you to it 's the responsible thing for you to do. Look after yourself and you 'll be able to show me what you can do. At the same time, don't be foolish, just help yourself. You're the agent of creation. This is such a little thing. It's such an easy thing. This is a good thing. Do this good thing for yourself. Surely that's not unreasonable. In reply, Jesus quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is writing and reminding Israel of the 40 years they had spent in the wilderness. And this is what he says. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for those 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is reminding Israel of the 40 years they had spent in the wilderness. He's urging them, obey God's command. Listen to what God has given you in the law. Be careful to follow every command you are given. They're humbled in the wilderness. They're made to hunger so that they would learn to depend on God. To look to God to provide, not to look to their own strength. Which is not what they did, because they whinged and complained all the way. Moses is urging them to follow the path that God had laid out for them, and to trust him to provide everything that he needed. And what we're seeing here is that Christ, the true Israel, the true vine, successfully does what the old Israel, the nation of Israel, failed to do. So the suggestion seems innocent. But the context means that for Christ, this is a moral choice. Okay? It's a choice to rely on the Father to trust him or to do something contrary to the will of his Father, something evil. And he says, no. Satan's underlying message, his subtext is the exact opposite of what Moses is saying. His message is, you're the son of God, you're not dependent on anyone, least of all him. So look after yourself, why do you want to trust God to provide? Jesus sees through it and he responds, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, no, I will trust my father to provide what I need for this path laid out before me, I will not trust my own strength, I will not seek autonomy, I will look to God to provide. If you've been a Christian for some time, then it becomes easy to just kind of skim over these words in this passage, don't you think? I do. But when you stop and you look and you look at the subtlety, and you look at the appeal, and you look at the seeming rightness of how the temptation comes, of how evil comes wrapped in the most innocent of suggestions, then it should send a chill down your spine. The draw to pornography starts with the apparent, but not really innocent, appreciation of beauty, or the casual, unguarded browsing of the web. The draw to gossip starts with the apparent but not really innocent care and concern about how someone is struggling and the pull to share that with someone else. We don't stand around in a circle chatting over coffee after lunch and call someone over with an invitation to join a game of character assassination, do we? We call them over because we want to express our heartfelt care and concern about someone else. And we share that. And this is why every call to resist temptation in Scripture is prefaced with one command, flee, run for your life. Run immediately at the appearance of the apparent but not really innocent appeal. And that's what Christ does. But let's move on. We've seen that Jesus' first response is, I will trust God to provide. And now we move on to his second, I will trust God to protect. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that it's kind of hard to see the temptation in standing on top of a high building and leaping. Um, But this was no ordinary building. This was the temple. This, for the people of Israel, was the visible reminder of God's protection and of God's presence. Now, Satan knows his Bible, so he quotes from Psalm 91, and he tries to push Christ to prove that God will be faithful to his son. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. But look at how Jesus responds. He quotes Moses again. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel is told by Moses, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Marsa. Now, Moses is reminding them of a shameful incident which took place in the desert at this place called Massa, and it's in Exodus 17, you can find it there. And at that point, Israel tests God by demanding that he provide them with more water. Give us water to drink, is the Lord with us or not, they arrogantly say to Moses. And what's happening is that they have utterly failed to trust God to provide and to give them what they need. Prove your presence, God. Prove your protection, and they try to manipulate the promise that he's made to them. And yes, Satan is pushing Christ to do the same thing. He's saying, let's just be sure. Did God really say what he did? Surely we need some proof. Surely we need to be sure we didn't mishear him. Surely, if what he says is true, we can trust him to demonstrate it. And Christ is tempted to put God to the test by manipulating Psalm 91 into forcing the Father to prove his love by miraculously delivering Christ. Prove your presence, God. Prove your protection. But Jesus responds again, and he responds with, no, I will not test my Father. I will rest in the shelter of his security, regardless of what may or may not happen to me. He's not saying that nothing bad will happen, obviously. But he is saying that he trusts the Word's wisdom and the love of his Father, and that it will take him down the right path, even though it be a painful one. Now, it's good to remember this whenever we're in a stressful situation, whenever we're tempted to succumb to the pressure of the world around us, to the culture around us, and even to some voices in the wider church that we are part of. It's good to remember this when we're faced one day with a difficult decision, possibly, that we will have to make regarding our future in the Church of England. It's good to remember that regardless of any decision we may make, we can rest in the shelter of his security, in his presence, and in his protection. And that's all we need. As Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's good to remember that Christ looked to the Father for his protection. So we've seen that Jesus' first response is, I will trust God to provide. We've seen that his second response is, I will trust God to protect. And now finally we come to the third. I will trust God's plan. So reading from verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him And angels came and attended him. It feels a bit like a last-ditch attempt, doesn't it? Kind of like throwing all caution to the wind and going for broke. But there is something else going on, as we've seen previously as well. So Christ is taken to a high mountain. Or he may have been given a vision by Satan, and he's shown all of the kingdoms of the world. And Satan promises him something that he actually doesn't have the ability to deliver. He promises him authority over all the nations. He doesn't mention sonship in this case, you will have noticed. So he doesn't say, if you are the son of God, dot, dot, dot. But it is there in the background. And it's tied to this claim that he makes, because it's tied to a promise that God made to his son. So in Psalm 2, we read this. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son... Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So he's playing on that psalm. Now Christ has therefore already been promised all authority. He's already been promised all power by the Father. He already knows it will be his. But the temptation that Satan puts in front of him is to get all of that now. Without going down the path that had been laid out before him, a path filled with sorrow, with suffering, and ultimately with a violent death. The temptation is to seize the Father's reward then and there without walking down that path through an alliance with Satan. You're the son, he says. Why take this horrendous route that the Father has laid out for you? You're a king. Why be crucified? Take it now. I can give it to you. It'll all be yours. It's a temptation to do what we so often do. It's a temptation to take the easy way, to take the way in which the end justifies the means. But for Christ, the first command is to love God with heart, soul, mind and strength and to worship him only, and he wouldn't have it. And he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He refuses the temptation to assert himself in the world while robbing God of his worship. He says no. One of the commentators, Russell Moore, uh, put it this way. He said, Jesus refused to exchange the end-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation by a snake. Christ knew that the supreme duty of all of us is to worship God, and he knew that everyone who humbles himself before God will be exalted. So he chose... He chose to live a life of suffering and of obedience to his Father instead of sinful submission to Satan. And in the end, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And there we have it. Christ is authenticated. He places his trust in the Father's provision. He places his trust in his protection. And he places his trust in his plan. He's proven to be the Messiah and your path to salvation is secured. And he goes on in chapter 4, verse 12, as the NIV appropriately entitles it to begin to preach, he commences his ministry. Now, There's a lot more that could be said about the passage, because there are layers and layers. Um, But I'd like to wrap up with just a couple of observations. Firstly, if you're a Christian, did you... Did you notice how, or have you noticed how, whenever this second person of the Trinity, this agent of creation, the Son of God, the Messiah, the All-Knowing, the All-Powerful, the Glorious One, who has all of the wisdom and the knowledge in heaven and on earth, whenever he's under extreme pressure and duress, his gut reaction is the Word of God, the Bible on your lap. If you cut him, he bleeds Scripture. He didn't think about it. That's just what came out. If that's what this person needed at those times, not just during his temptation, but you see it throughout his life, and you see it even on the cross when he's crucified and he's dying. If that's what he needed at those times, how much more true is that of us? It's an encouragement, believe it or not. You're given the word of God, which you've seen from Christ's example will give you the strength and the wherewithal to cope in any situation, why wouldn't you immerse yourself in it? Why wouldn't you prioritize it? Why wouldn't you start small if you don't know where to start with 10 minutes a day? Because what you can see here is the invaluable benefit of God's word in those times when your life will be really, really hard. It's a comfort and it's a sword. It will encourage you, and it will protect you. But maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're still mulling over this Christianity thing. Well, then, I hope that what we've seen this morning is at least helpful in showing you that Christ isn't just a good man. Matthew isn't just saying, emulate this guy. He's really someone to follow. All of the evidence that he, pla- that he placed before us, all of our experience, testifies to the fact that this man is the Messiah, is the one sent by God to reconcile us to himself, is the promised Son of God. And the message he gives when he starts his, his his ministry in chapter four is crystal clear repent, which is another way of saying turn and give over control of your life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near you recall that that third temptation was a view of the kingdoms of the earth when Christ was on a mountain. If you turn to the end of Matthew, chapter 28, what you read is that the disciples went and they met the resurrected Christ on a mountain. And they worshipped him. And he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's confirmed later in the New Testament and we're warned that Christ will return again with all of that authority as God and as judge. Like someone said, no Christian should stand in judgment over another Christian. You're just a poor beggar telling someone where there's bread. So I urge you, while you have time, relinquish control. Turn over to Christ, put your trust in the Messiah who can reconcile you to God, who can give you peace, who can bring you to this God whom you can trust as he did for provision, for protection, and for your path in life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you did fulfill all of those prophecies given about you hundreds of years before. We thank you that you did come to this earth to be our saviour, to be our messiah we thank you that you withstood satan's onslaught and that you went on to take the path that was laid out for you by the father and we thank you that you have authority in heaven over heaven and over earth and we pray lord that you would be gracious and merciful to us all in this day and we ask this in your name and for your glory
0: amen